From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Herman Daly, the champion of steady state economics. We'll be talking about the role of markets and capitalism in a steady state economy. I, for one, and I suspect many others as well, have been looking forward to this episode because I think Professor Daly's thoughts on markets and capitalism have been not only misunderstood in many corners, but in some cases misrepresented as well. It's time to set the record straight, so the title of this episode is What Herman Daly Really Says About Markets and Capitalism. Herman Daly, welcome back to the Steady Stater. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. Well, Herman, I think this is such an important topic today that I came a little more prepared than usual. What I'd like to do here with you is cover some context, define a few terms, and then hear your thoughts on markets and capitalism. Sound okay? Sure, fine. All right. How about if we start with you identifying the three basic themes of steady-state economics. Yeah, I think there are three basic economic problems of any kind of economics has to deal with uh, the scale of the macroeconomy relative to the total ecosystem that it's a part of and that limits it. Uh, Secondly, it has to deal with the distribution of product and ownership and income among all the different actors and people in the economy. And then third, it has to deal with the efficiency of the allocation of resources among all the different things that can be produced. Mm -hmm. All right, so so if we had to put it in three words, it sounds like we're talking about sustainability, fairness, and efficiency. Exactly. Okay, and and today's episode, the focus is on that third goal of efficiency or the efficient allocation of resources. And just to be perfectly clear, what are some of the resources or the main categories of resources we're allocating here? Well, um, of course, I guess first there's human labor. Uh, There's the... uh, the natural resources, which energies, energy and materials, you can divide that further into the current income of solar energy and the accumulated capital of past solar energy in terms of fossil fuels and the concentrated minerals in the Earth's crust. Uh, so, uh, and then people would also say, well, there's capital, the the uh, accumulated man-made instruments of production and would go on to include in that uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, knowledge as a kind of capital base. So the, the concept of capital is kind of, uh, it can be extended to many different things and that gets into some problems, but we'll leave that aside for a minute. All right, so so we're talking about the, the allocation of resources, basically land, labor, and capital. Uh, and, and where land at least includes natural capital, ecosystem services, and so on. Uh, now, just one more thing here for context. These resources we're allocating, who precisely are they being allocated to? 
Are we talking purely about the allocation of resources to producers in the agricultural and, and manufacturing and service sectors? Or are we talking, in fact, about the allocation of products to consumers? Or is it all yeah. the above? Yeah, well, in a sense, it's all of the above. Ultimately, it's the allocation of the products to consumers. But in order to get there, you first have to allocate the resources to the producers. And the, uh, the idea of efficiency is that the allocation of resources to the producers must be in conformity with what the consumers really want and, of course, are able to pay for. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that seems like enough context then to move a step closer to the crux of the matter, namely your thoughts, Herman, on the role of markets and the broader concept of capitalism. But I still want to make sure that we and our listeners are on the same page with the key terms here. So first, can you give us a basic definition of markets? Yeah, well, markets are uh, based on exchange. Uh, people trade one thing for another in the market. You go to a market with either uh, either barter to exchange one thing that you uh, don't want so much for something else that you want more. And then we come in to have a, a medium of exchange because barter is seldom equal. You need something to make up the difference. And, and so money evolves as a way of doing that. Uh, and so markets have, have pre-existed <laughs> capitalism. They pre-exist uh, socialism or communism. Markets arise in all sorts of social conditions. Even prisoners, prisoner of war camps famously had markets where prisoners would receive uh, packages uh, of goods and, and items. Uh, but uh, they got a lot of things they didn't much want and uh, other people had things they wanted more and so they grew up a kind of trade within the prisoner of war camp people exchange things uh, cigarettes begin to function as money and so so markets have a have a deep root in uh, human history Hmm. okay now the word capitalism seems to carry all kinds of connotations in addition to strict linguistic meaning but for our purposes today, Herman, how would you describe capitalism? Yeah, mainly, the, I think, as the private ownership of means of production and, uh, with, and the coordination through uh, markets and exchange uh, with considerable, um, in the modern world, with considerable uh, oversight by government. Of the of the ultimate uh, of the ultimate allocation and distribution of income. Okay, so it sounds like it's safe to say that a capitalist economy has uh, relatively free markets by definition, but the converse isn't true. So we can have market socialism, for example. Yeah, market socialism is a is a you know, quite a, a reasonable alternative. Uh, but I, I would say that part of the, you may be wanting to get into this in a different way, but I guess many people understand capitalism to mean that the market and private ownership in the market determine totally what the allocation distribution scale of the economy will be. So this is market with a capital M. It determines everything. 
Mm. Well, this is certainly not what I understand or advocate by capitalism. Mm-hmm. Would, I would uh, want, want to simp- really take away from this market capitalist system that we exist in, take away from it the ability to control scale uh, or sustainability. That would become a, a collective social decision, not an individualistic market decision. And mm-hmm. secondly, the distribution of income and wealth also would be taken away from the individualistic market and would become a function of um, of, of the government and, and the collective uh, decision making. So that would leave allocation as the the area in which the market uh, would would uh, tend to keep keep a function. But even there. There are many, many goods which cannot be allocated by the market, and uh, they were public goods. There, uh, so so even even within the allocation sphere, we we have to uh, have public uh, public input. Mm-hmm. Well, Herman, I read the first edition of your textbook with a fine tooth comb, and then I wrote a review of it for the journal Ecology. That was in two thousand four. I'm talking about ecological economics, principles and applications, which you wrote with Joshua Farley. I called it the textbook for ecological economics, and I still pitch it that way whenever I can. The second edition came out in 2011. I'm looking at it right now, Herman, and I want to tell listeners that the bulk of part three on microeconomics is all about markets, five of the six chapters to be specific. Furthermore, of those five chapters on markets, three, one, two, three, are devoted to market failures. The chapter I found useful over and over again is chapter 10, Herman, where you first introduce market failures in general, and and in particular, those first few sections on the characteristics of market goods, especially rivalness and excludability. Please tell us about rival and excludable goods. Yeah, this is uh, very important. And this comes really out of standard economics, uh, even neoclassical. These concepts uh, were, I think, rather orphaned by neoclassical economics, even though they originated them. And ecological economists eagerly adopted these orphans because they're very, very important for understanding. But rivalness is just a physical concept. It means that if you, if you use it, I can't use it. Uh, you know, I, uh, if you're if I'm wearing my shirt, you can't wear it, and I uh, and I can allow you to wear it if I want to because it belongs to me. Uh, what so, kind of shirt you wear in there? <laughs> well, I got on a, a, a sort of a cowboy uh, oh. shirt with, with, with snaps. <laughs> I might want to borrow that. Yeah, you can do it. I'll, I'll lend it to you. And uh, because and well, this and this good that I wear is excludable because I I can exclude you from wearing it. Uh, this is a legal concept, not a physical concept. So that's the interesting thing about rivalness. And what is it that works for markets? Markets work for goods which are both rival and excludable. And so you can have other goods which are non-rival 
are non-excludable, in which case you, the market simply does not work or, or works badly. And, uh, and so you need, even, even for, uh, for goods and for uh, efficiency, you need to condition the market or restrain the market or interfere with the market when you have, when you have non-rival and uh, non-excludable goods. Okay, so rivalness is an inherent characteristic of the good itself, while excludability is a matter of institutions. It's, yes. Okay, and it sounds like we also need to consider that when we say goods in this context, we actually mean goods and services. Yes, and, that's true. But to keep it simple, uh, I think when you have a rival good that is non-excludable, then you have like the tragedy of the commons, the open access, uh, the fisheries uh, system, uh, the tragedy of the commons. Uh, you have other case where you have goods which are non-rival, but they are excludable. And this mm -hmm. is the case of, let's say, knowledge uh, and, and the uh, ownership, uh, what do you call it, the uh, uh, ownership of knowledge through patents. Mm -hmm. uh, Hmm. Well, these these are very difficult cases for the market, and you need to have institutions which which interfere with the market and don't. Uh, the other thing I'll say about markets is that um, if you need if you want to have independence in the sense of self-employment, then you really need markets. If you want, if you really hate markets and you want to get rid of them, <laughs> as some people do, then you're also going to get rid of self-employment because you need uh, exchange and you need money and markets in order to have small-scale self-employment. So if you if you do that, then you're you're pushing yourself into the direction of a world in which everyone is an employee and in which you have a, a, you know very large employers government and large and everyone else is an employee this this is uh, i think leads to a lot of inefficiencies and loss of freedom well herman you're widely known as a real gentleman so i'm going to have to play bad cop here <laughs> okay. I, I don't like it when someone talks about steady state economics as a so-called trojan horse for neoclassical economics and uses your own thoughts on markets, or I should say a, a misportrayal of your thoughts on markets as evidence for the supposed Trojan horsemanship. Anyone with a valid reading of your assessment of markets would know that you're no free marketer and that in fact, you've probably educated more people on market failures than on the allocative advantages of markets. But let's try to figure out for a moment, Herman, where these critics are coming from. As far as you know, what kind of allocative mechanism do they propose for these rival and excludable goods like shoes and backpacks and napkins? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I've raised that question with them. And as much of an answer as I can get is just a, a term they use, um, social provisioning. They say, well, we do, the alternative to market allocation is social provisioning. Well, what does that mean? 
historically and theoretically, it is it has meant some form of centralized planning. You don't have a market. You have a planned allocation. Uh, each person gets so much of this and so much of that. Like in the prisoner war camp, you know, you get a you get a package, a care package sent to you, and uh, even in those cases, uh, you have. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, you, you have markets growing up in which people exchange things they don't really want for other things they want more, and people have different preferences. So there, there develops a trade in the market. Uh, under a central planning system, these would, these would tend to be black markets. Uh, and uh, so the, the key, the thing I don't understand about the objection uh, is that goodness gracious, we've taken away from the current market system in, the, in our ecological economic theory, we've taken away two fundamental functions of the existing market. We've said, no, the market cannot determine the, the scale of the economy relative to the ecosystem. The sustainability issue cannot be solved by markets. That Take it away from the market. That is a, a collective social decision. And secondly, uh, the distribution of income uh, cannot be, and wealth cannot be left up to the market. Left to itself, the market will concentrate income more and more and more. So if you want some degree of, if you want to limit the degree of inequality, then you're going to have to use, okay, these are big, big things. Uh, And and so why why do they say, Oh, let's just focus on the, the, the daily likes the market and he wants the market to control things and he's really a capitalist. Nonsense. That's not <laughs> true. And so I get I get frustrated by that. And uh, I don't know quite. I, where does it come from? I think it comes from uh, judging from the backgrounds of the people who raise these issues. I, I would say there's a kind of a latent Marxism. That's that uh, from Europe, particularly, but also in the United States. Mm-hmm. That uh, that this arises from. All right. Well, I'd like to allocate some time now for a short non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. Hello, steady staters. We hope you're enjoying the show. The truth is that for real legislative change to take place. Politicians need to hear from steady-staters. We must let them know that their strategies of economic growth are not solving our problems, but rather causing new ones. As listeners of the Steady Stater podcast, we encourage you to contact your politicians and ask them to consider alternatives to economic growth. Now more than ever, we need our politicians to engage in an honest and open dialogue about economic growth, and that begins with us. Feel free to use the sample letter provided on our website as a starting point. Just visit SteadyState.org, pan over to the ACT tab, and click on Contact a Politician. Now, back to the show. Well, Herman, we've been talking mostly about markets so far, and now we need to talk a little more about capitalism. You've defined it already, so what are the the basic alternatives to capitalism? Well, I guess uh, socialism, uh, communism... Uh, and if you go back far enough, I guess tribalism, w- w- in, in terms of very small scale uh, economies, uh, 
I, th I think these are the alternatives. And then is, you might ask, is steady state economics, is that an alternative to capitalism? Well, I think in a way it is, it, but it's a, a, in my view, it, it draws some features from capitalism and it draws some features from socialism. Uh, the collective control of scale and distribution, it draws from socialism. The uh, market mechanism of, of allocation for market goods, it draws from uh, more from capitalism. And I think the ownership of the means of production, private ownership of the means of production, it draws from capitalism, but the limited degree of inequality in the ownership, it draws from socialism. So it's, uh, I would say steady state economics tries to draw the, um, the best features from socialism and capitalism. Okay, well, how would you describe the political economy of the USA then? Is it a a capitalist democracy like it's commonly called, or is it more like a constitutional democracy with a mixed economy? Well, it's a mixed economy which is which has gone very far in the direction of plutocracy, so that we, we have a fundamentally uh, unlimited degree of inequality in the distribution of income and wealth. Uh, and I might say that, you know, for in just standard neoclassical economic theory, if you're talking about efficiency of the price system, uh, the efficient allocation of resources always is based upon, presupposes some given distribution of income. So a, an allocation is efficient only with reference to a given primary distribution of income and wealth. If you change the distribution of income and wealth, that, then that throws the whole price system and efficiency. Uh, they're non-comparable anymore. That's the Pareto optimality business, right? Yeah, the right? Pareto optimality. There's a different Pareto optimum for every different distribution of income and wealth. Mm -hmm. So there's not just one Pareto optimum. You have to specify which distribution of income that Pareto optimum corresponds to. Okay, well... I want to uh, use a metaphor here of horse and rider. How possible is it, let's say in the USA, to enculturate a democratic rider smart enough and strong enough to ride a, a more or less capitalist horse in steady state fashion? Now, I guess I'm talking about you know conscientious consumption as well as the election of steady state candidates and the passage of steady state policies. I don't think it's very possible in a plutocratic society in which we have unlimited inequality. Uh, so that, I think, is the feature of the uh, steady state economy that is, is most objected to. Even put it this way, I, I think if you, you have two extremes, you can think of a totally unlimited inequality or you can think of total equal distribution of wealth and income. I think either one is, is unworkable. Uh, so you have to have some limited degree of inequality, some degree of inequality 
which is sufficient to recognize real differences among real people and to give some incentive for extra work and so forth. And at the same time, you have to limit that degree to keep it from just developing into a a total plutocracy in which, uh, because the problem with the market, one problem with the market is if you win this time, you're more apt to win next time. And then the next time and the time after that. So the competition of the market, uh, winning tends to be cumulative. Hmm. And and you uh, develop this degree of inequality. So that has to be limited and controlled. Mm-hmm. Would you say the American Constitution is amenable at least to a steady state? Or, or is there some fatal flaw in there or some uh, missing piece to deal with plutocracy, for example? Well, you know, if you accept the, uh, the foundation of... Uh, all men are created and women are created equal, uh, or th- this basic notion of equality, I think that's, uh, that leads us towards uh, limiting the degree of market inequality for sure. Although it's clear that we are not all equal in many respects, so that has to be dealt with. I mean, if you f- try to force an equality on everyone, that becomes uh, impossible too. Mm-hmm. What about something more specific like the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978? How big of a barrier is that to an American steady state? Well, uh, I think the problem with that would full employment, by all means, balanced growth. I guess balanced growth is better than unbalanced growth, but growth is, I think, the fundamental problem that we're going to have to uh, deal with in, in economics, I, I think our big problem, and going back to capitalism versus socialism, the, the big difficulty of both systems in the modern world has been that they're totally committed to growth. I mean, capitalism is committed to growth. Socialism, communism is committed to growth. And so uh, I think that common failure, common flaw is uh, a means of of uh, reconciling these two warring systems. If you recognize your common failure, you're probably in a better position to develop something which avoids it and, and unites the systems in terms of their best qualities rather than their common failure. Hmm. Well, you know, I worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for almost 20 years and, and several other conservation agencies before that. And I always felt our goals were basically socialist i mean we had national wildlife refuges national parks national forests and even national monuments and many of these were were being enjoyed by folks on social security <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you know you'd be tempted to think the steady stater might be uh, might want to be an avowed socialist but it sounds like what you're saying is we should simply stick to our principles of steady state economics and then let the chips of political economy fall where they may, with the labels uh, being what they what they might become. Yeah, I'm not so interested in the, in the labels. Uh, uh, as I said before, I think a steady state economy should draw from the best from socialism and the best from capitalism. And not only that, but we ha- we do have to recognize that we're we start from. Ex- historically given initial conditions. We don't start from a clean slate. 
And so we're stuck with the economy in a sense in the way it is as our starting point. I don't mean we have to stay there, but we have to recognize that we don't choose our own a, a clean slate. We start from where we are and we're in this uh, sort of mixed economy which, re, which relies too heavily on the market in terms of, in terms of uh, setting scale and uh, distribution. And so we certainly have to deal with that and, and move in the socialist direction. Uh, well, but, you know, the idea that you're going to uh, give everybody each uh, equal shares of everything uh, is, is rather utopian and it uh, is not likely to work. And mm-hmm. furthermore, there is something to be said for efficiency in the allocation of, of resources. And the market does have something to contribute there. Mm-hmm. Well, Herman Daly, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And uh, why don't why don't we get you back again so we can talk in a little more depth about various models and combinations of political economy? Well, that would be fine, Brian. And I must say, I'm I'm so glad and thankful for the work that you have done in in bringing all of these things, uh, steady state and degrowth and everything into a into a common way of thinking and uh, and presents and presenting it to the general public mm-hmm. thank you very much oh you bet well folks that about wraps her up we've been talking with herman daly the champion of steady state economics if you see any articles about steady state econ as a so-called trojan horse for neoclassical economics just remember the ironies never cease. If you want to really know what Professor Daly thinks about markets and capitalism, I highly recommend the book Ecological Economics, Principles and Applications. You will find there not a Trojan horse, but a workhorse. A workhorse for pulling the cart of steady state policies all the way through Congresses, Parliaments, and international diplomacy. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.